That is Slavic, the man that I told you all about last week. He is the president of the Ukrainian Baptist Theological Seminary. He graduated from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in 2012 with his PhD, moved to Ukraine to lead uh, that seminary. I am confident that when he took that position, he had no idea what he'd be doing today. Uh, last week, I presented that seminary uh, as an opportunity for us to be able to, to give in a way that I knew would be helpful and meaningful and that every dollar, every penny that we give would, would go where we want it to go. Now, I know there's a lot of great charities out there. There's a lot of great opportunities. But right now, I, I look for places that I have confidence that I can see something. The Ukrainian Baptist Theological Seminary, as I described last week, is in Lviv. You'll see it on the news every night. Uh, Lviv is in one of the safer places in western Ukraine at this point. It's on one of the major thoroughfares of evacuation uh, on the way toward Poland. I saw just this morning that over a million now, a million evacuees or refugees have, have gone into Poland, just Poland. Uh, we're nearing the number of two million evacuees completely uh, to be evacuated from the Ukraine. But over a million, I think it's 1.2 million or estimates, have gone into Poland. Many of those come through Lviv. Now, certainly, that seminary is not able to help all, but that seminary is in a strategic position to be able to help some. I am grateful for this church. I put out that plea or that opportunity last week, not really a plea, just an opportunity for us to give to a trustworthy way to meet the needs of refugees, men and women, I mean, children and women primarily who are leaving the country. Uh, and you gave over $5,000 to that effort. Thank, praise the Lord for that. Uh, that it's going to be an ongoing need. He posted, he is right now posting about a two to three minute video every day. It's not easy to find. You can find it on the Facebook page. Uh, that's from yesterday, uh, 10 days into this refugee work that they're doing. That seminary has, uh, of course, obviously they're not able to hold classes. I think many of the students have been forced to leave, but they here, the faculty and the staff has turned their buildings into basically a refugee center, uh, giving people a, a hot meals, a place to sleep, providing transportation to get them closer to the border to help refugees on their way as they pass through Lviv. So continue to pray, certainly, and uh, as the Lord blesses you, if you're looking for a way to give uh, that I believe would be helpful and have a direct impact, you can go on our Facebook page and give to that Ukrainian Baptist theological, it's, I think I called it the Ukrainian Relief Fund or something like that, or Ukrainian Emergency. But you, it's on, our, on the list, on our uh, giving page. You can give directly to that. And then last week at 5 o'clock, I forwarded $4,500 in that neighborhood. And then each week, whatever else comes in, we're going to forward directly to them. And we're, you know, there's, because we're trying to get it to them immediately, we're using a credit card to do it. And there's a little bit of a fee with that. But the church itself, we, we are, as a church, out of our general budget, are covering that, that little bit of credit card fee so that every penny that you give directed to that relief goes to that relief. And I want you to be confident in that. That, that crisis has been eye-opening and challenging to many of us in America. I, I had to ask the question early on, why is it that the Ukrainian people so love freedom? 
Why is it that they value freedom so much that many of their women, in fact, most of the women who don't have children that they're concerned about, they're taking up arms to fight? It's because they remember what it's like to not have freedom. They remember what it's like to be under a totalitarian regime, and they don't want to go back there. Paul issues a desperate plea to the churches at Galatia along those lines, but it's along the the lines of spiritual freedom. We saw it early in Galatians chapter 1 when Paul asked the Galatians, he said, why? Why do you want to go back to, to where you were? He cries out to him. He said, I am shocked. I'm, I'm, I'm flabbergasted would be a good translation of that word. I'm amazed that you're so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of God and are turning to a different gospel. Why is it that the Galatians, why is it that Christians are so quick to leave the freedom that we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ and turn back to our sin, turn back to, to religion, to try to reach God. That's the struggle that Paul's having. And so what we're seeing on the news has resonated with me as I've read Paul's fight for the simple gospel here in Galatians chapter 3 and 4. One of our church members posted a, a meme this week that I thought was, <coughs> was, was challenging. And I know many of you mentioned it as well. The, the, the meme said this, it says, when you go to church this Sunday and you feel that old temptation to point out what's wrong with the place, the coffee's lukewarm, the lights are too bright, the temperature is wrong, the music's too loud, and of course you don't know the songs, remember, in that moment, remember, there's a Ukrainian church gathering in a subway to worship while bombs are blasting overhead. No coffee, no instrumentalist, no leader pushing them to worship. They're down there in real time and in real life, worshiping the king above all kings as their world is crumbling down around them. Folks, we are so incredibly blessed and so incredibly spoiled. And because of our blessing and because of our comfort, It is so easy for us to take for granted the beauty and the freedom that comes in the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. That's one of the things that's wrong with the Galatian church. That's one of the things that's wrong with churches in our environment today. When it's so easy for us because we're so comfortable to let everything else distract us and we forget the beauty of God's mercy, of God's grace poured out for us on the cross. Let's pray. Father, right now we pause to pray. I pray for Slavic, as president of the seminary, who is seeking to be used of you in the midst of wartime and Lord, we don't know how much longer it'll be until Viv comes under attack. Lord, I pray that, that you bring peace and comfort, but even more so courage. Just take a stand for the gospel. To do what he's been called to do, his staff, his faculty, to minister to the hurting and to tell them about Jesus along their journey. 
Father, I pray that as we watch night after night, hour after hour, that we don't become desensitized to the human pain and suffering, the children that are losing their lives, the families that are losing their fathers. And Father, we know that this is the condition of the world, but we've lived in such comfort and such ease that we've forgotten how valuable our freedom is. And Father, we've gotten so comfortable in our churches that we'll gripe and complain about little things that just don't matter that much, especially when we compare them to the beauty and the glory of the gospel. Many men and women are paying a huge price for their freedom right now. Father, you paid the ultimate price for our eternal hope that we have. Bring us home through your word. Bring our thoughts back to the basics that matter most. Let your spirit move, we pray in Jesus' name. I have so many thoughts, and this passage today is so hard to get a handle on. I'll be honest with you. It's hard to preach. It falls in the middle of Paul's greatest argument for the pure gospel. The, 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 the Galatian church had heard the gospel. They, they, had, they understood that they could only come to, to faith, that they could only gain eternal life by faith in God, given through his grace in Jesus Christ. They knew it. They'd heard it. It had been, uh, that, that's, that's what transformed them. If you were in your growth group today, it, you saw uh, how the, the Gentiles responded in posit, positively toward the gospel, the simple gospel that Jesus died, Jesus rose again, and he was the fulfillment of their hope for all of eternity. The, the hard part was those, those religious people, the Jews who, who knew a lot of that history, they shunned it. Because of other issues, they, they, they didn't like Barnabas and Paul kind of, kind of getting the, the glory for it as, as part of the issue. Uh, they didn't like the fact that, that they were losing their grip, uh, the religious leaders on their people. They didn't like the fact that they were kind of losing some of their religion. But because if, if Jesus, uh, by, if you come to faith alone through Christ, some of the religious exercises of Judaism were no longer necessary, and they're losing their grip on, on all of those religious exercises that they found so much value, and they didn't want to give those up just to trust in Christ and Christ alone. But Paul continued to preach that gospel, and as he preached that gospel, people responded. And then he comes to, he, he, he goes back home, and he hears through the grapevine that, that folks are coming in, religious leaders are coming in, and they're twisting the gospel, and they're, they're trying to give a different kind of gospel, and it's confusing those young believers, those young Christians who had come to, to faith, who had come to, had gained eternal life by faith alone. And so Paul writes back to them and, and he says, like, like what I read a few minutes ago in, in Galatians 1, 6, I, I can't believe that you're so quickly to turn back. And then today, we're, we're in the midst of his argument, okay? His argument, kind of his, his main theological discussion, uh, is, it builds from the Galatians chapter 3 through the end of Galatians chapter 4. And he has this kind of three-pronged argument that he doubles up on. He starts out by... Uh, in, in Galatians chapter, chapter 3, toward the beginning, talking about the law and the promise. And he's using Abraham as the example. And Nathan did a great job preaching on that. And he talks about how, how we've got to make sure that we don't, we don't miss this salvation by faith. 
and, and, and return to the law because it was, uh, we have this example even from the Old Testament that, that, the, pro, that the promise of God is what saved Abraham, his belief and his faith in the promise, not the law itself. The law hadn't been given yet. And so he talks about the law and the promise and then he, he speaks about uh, the purpose of the law in the next section. So he uses Abraham as an example. Uh, in the middle of, of chapter three, he, uses, he talks about the purpose of the law. And then he speaks about how Christ has come, that we might be redeemed. And then you have the pivot point that we looked at last week in verse 26, where he says, by faith, you, you're sons of God. And then after that pivot point, he starts back and he's going to make his arguments in reverse. And so last week we looked at, he goes back to deal with this issue of, of the law and, and the purpose of the law and the, the, how we'd been in slavery under the law, but how we've been free to that. Uh, and, and so the, the impact Christ had on our life has been reversed and that we've been made sons of God. And then today in verses eight through 11, he's going to address this issue of not focusing on the law necessarily, but focusing on religion, okay, which is very closely in our minds associated. It's the rules and regulations of, of religious worship and, and, and the religious aspect of a lot of what we do, going through the motions to, to try to measure up to God. And, and that's in verses 8 through 11. And then we're, we're going to talk about that. And then Paul moves into kind of a parenthetical statement where he just becomes disheartened almost. And he begs the church. And what you have is Paul steps out of his, his structure of his argument for just a moment with this big parenthesis from verses 12 down through verse 20 to plead with the church, don't do it. Don't leave. Don't, don't set behind the simplicity of the gospel. Don't miss it. So that's why it's so hard to preach because Paul goes from teaching to begging. He goes from laying out his case to, to, to laying out his heart. And, and I'm not Paul, so I don't have Paul's heart. So it's hard for me to lay out Paul's heart for you. So I was tempted to skip it. Isn't that what you do when you don't when a preacher doesn't like a passage, doesn't like words, he just skips it. He finds it something easier to preach. But I can't do that. I think we need to hear Paul's heart today, especially in light of, of where we are as a church, not just our church, but where we are as a church in the world. So walk with me. Let's, let's read the text, and then we'll come back to these three paragraphs. Uh, the first paragraph uh, in particular where, where he, he talks about this, this warning again against returning to the, to the things of the flesh to, to reach God. But, but in the past, it says, since you didn't know God, you were enslaved to things that by nature are not God's. By now... Since you know God, or rather have become known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elements? Do you want to be enslaved to them all over again? You're observing special days, months, seasons, and years. I'm fearful for you that perhaps my labor for you has been wasted. And then he gets to the to parenthetical part that, where, where he just begs. He says, I, I beg you, brothers and sisters, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have not wronged me. You know that previously I preached the gospel to you because of a weakness of the flesh. You did not despise or reject me through my physical condition, or though my physical condition was a trial for you. On the contrary, you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. 
So then I have become your enemy because I told you the truth? They court you eagerly, but not for good. They want to exclude you from me so that you'd pursue them. But it's always good to be pursued in a good manner and not just when I am with you. My children, I am again suffering labor pains for you until Christ is formed in you. I would like to be with you right now and change my tone of voice because I don't know what to do about you. Do you hear Paul's pleading, Paul's heartbreak? He reminds them, there was a time when you would pluck your eyes out for me. There was a time when I would give my life for you. And, and, and what's happened? What, where have you gone? And, and, and we know what he's struggling with. Here's what he's, what's happened is they've, they've started to go back to their religious exercises as a way to measure up, to meet God. Now, in particular, the churches throughout Galatia, various churches, as he went throughout the Galatian region, worshiped various types of false gods. Some of them, in your mind, if you just think through it right now, if you've seen pictures of some of the Hindu gods with large statues, some of them with multiple arms or multiple breasts, signifying a nourishing god or a huge sun god, those were the, the types of gods in, in some of the various uh, localities throughout southern Galatia at that time that were being worshipped. And what, when Paul preached the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, these, these people, the Gentiles primarily, which you're studying in, in Acts, some of the Jews responded, but even more so the Gentiles, left behind their false gods who they decided, those aren't really gods at all, they're just statues, there's no strength in them. There's no hope in them. There's no power in them. And they turned toward the one true living God and put their faith and trust in the one and only God who could save them. And so Paul writes to them, in the past, since you didn't know God, you were enslaved to, to those things that by nature are not God's. But since now you know God, or rather become known by God, how do you turn back again to the weak and worthless elements? So he's talking to people who came to faith in Christ and trusted, him, trusted Christ and Christ alone as the one true living God. They are believers. They're Christians. And yet, they've turned back to what is worthless and meaningless they started to find, once again, comfort in going to the temple and worshiping the old gods. They started finding comfort in some of the rituals of their old gods. And going back to those rituals, going back to those things might have brought some human comfort because maybe they reunited with some of their friends. They got connected to some of their groups. And oftentimes there is just, there's something about us humans that we want, we feel like we need to do something to measure up to God. And so if I was to break this, this down and just give you kind of three eternal truths. The first one is this. Paul wants to remind them that without Christ, none of this matters. Your worship is meaningless. Your life is short and your life has no meaning outside of Christ. You can, you can worship the things of this world. You can, you can worship those gods who, and part of what it was boiling down to is they, uh, they worship God's who they thought would bring them material goods. 
That's what the worship of Baal was all about throughout the Old Testament. Was Baal was a, was a, a God who was supposed to bring fruit and, and, and heart, great harvest. And so they would worship these gods who would bring them wealth and health. And so they, as they worship these health and wealth gods, they, they eventually found out that they didn't get health and wealth <laughs> because those gods were not gods at all. And so he, he, he warns them that, that there's only one true living God and you've met him. And you, you understood that those other gods were not gods at all. By their very nature, they weren't gods. False gods, Paul tells them, he reminds them, are not gods. Until we learn that, and, and, and come in contact with the one true King of kings and Lord of lords, Worship has no real meaning. It's just a sham. It may feel good. It may stir up an emotion inside the human, but it's just a sham. If you worship a, a, a stick, it, the prophets would talk about how, how it, you, people, you'll take a tree and, and you'll cut some of it up and you'll use some of it for firewood and you'll use some of it to build furniture and then you'll use some of it to make a god. But it's all made by human hands. A God made by human hands is no God at all. Oftentimes what we want to do is we want to remake our God in our image. We want to remake the Lord in our image. That's where a lot of the health and wealth gospel comes from. We want to, we want to make a God. We, we want to believe that, that he'll do whatever we want him to do. That's no God at all. If we, can, if we can pray a certain prayer and he'll do exactly what we want him to do, he's not God, we are. He, there is one true living God who is worthy of our worship and worthy of our praise. And these Galatian believers had put their faith and trust in that God. And Paul is flabbergasted. He's amazed that they're stepping away from their faith in him and turning back to things of this world as articles of worship or articles of pleasure. And he begs with them, don't be sucked back in to the religions of this world. Don't, don't go back to the practices that you used to do to try to please God. The truth is you can't please God anyway. He says here, you're observing. Now this, this phrase in the Greek could be structured as either a, a question or a statement. Uh, there's no uh, punctuation in the original text. And so we really don't know for sure. The CSB you, you already have a couple of questions there. How can you turn back and, uh, to the weak and worthless elements? Do you want to be enslaved to them over and over again? This could very well be a question. Are you observing special days, months, seasons, and years? Uh, or it could be a statement as the CSB is translated. You're observing special days, months, seasons, and years. But the bottom line is Paul is addressing this issue. They're, they're, a, they're turning back to the old worship practices to try to uh, and somehow find meaning in those. And Paul's telling them, you, you learned there never was meaning in those. Why are you turning back to them again? But there's a magnet. There's a draw in human forms of religious exercise that is attractive to our flesh. There just is. That's why I say it's so easy for people to get caught up in worshiping liturgy 
I don't, when we use the word liturgy and Matthew uses it here sometimes, he's talking about how we walk through our time of worship and how he structures a service. But there is a, in a lot of religious contexts, there's, there's a worship just of the liturgy itself. There's the, the, the incense and the smoke and the images. And, and sometimes those become more important to us. And those are a draw to the human flesh. We are pulled in sometimes. And so you see this in our nation where whether it be a crystal or, or whether it be an image in the sky where people can get drawn to those real quickly and forget the simple truth of who God is. Memorizing mantras, offering some type of sacrifice, collecting trinkets, honoring days and seasons, months and years, all of these things touch on something about our ability to reach up to God. And that's why there's a human a draw in our flesh to do that. We, we like to think that there's something that we can do to make God happy. There's something that we can do to add to his glory. When the truth is he is glory. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, whether you recognize it or not. We can't add anything to him. It may make us feel closer to God when we do these religious exercises, but the only hope that we have to come into the presence of a holy God is by grace through faith in what he has done. Now, does that mean that, that all elements of, of special worship days, you, we, we celebrate Easter, we have a Good Friday service, we have, we have a Christmas Eve service, does that mean that all of those are bad? No. I want to point you back to what Paul told the Romans in Romans chapter 14. He said, one person judges a day to be more important than another day. Someone else judges every day to be the same. Okay, let each one be fully convinced in his own mind, but whoever observes the day, observe it for the honor of the Lord. If there's a, a special day, to, uh, there's a, a special day to me is January the 3rd, okay? That probably doesn't mean much to most of the rest of you in this congregation. That is a special day to me, and it's worthy of celebration because that's the day that Susan said, I do, okay? That may not mean a lot to the rest of you, but even on that day, I ought to give, give thanks. Man, I certainly ought to give thanks, <laughs> to God for the blessing of life that he poured out on me on that day, right? So yes, there are days that you will uphold as more so than someone else. And some people are like, well, look, every day is the same. Regardless of how you look at it, every day is an opportunity to bring honor and glory to God. But there is no purpose in elevating a particular day unless it's to honor God. We don't gain anything from doing that. And so Paul is struggling here and he's trying to say, returning to your old forms of religion. So whereas in the first half of his argument in chapter three, he talked about the law itself from the Old Testament, okay? Now he's talking about some of the legalistic things that we do, our forms of religion. And whether it's the law of the Old Testament or whether it's our forms of, of celebrating days and times or, or, or certain types of, of gods in our lives, those forms, neither one of them can get you to God, Neither one of them is worthy of our worship and our attention. We come to, to, to a relationship with a living God by grace through faith. 
Period. It's God's grace poured out to us through his son who died on the cross and rose again. It is in Christ that we find life. It's in him that we find eternal life. And so Paul moves from his, that portion of his theological argument there in verses 8 through 11 to this pastoral plea. And as I've walked through this, I've, I've struggled with how, how do I preach this? Because like I said, I'm not Paul. I don't, I don't carry apostolic authority, okay? I'm Dennis. I'm a mere man here to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and to declare his word to you. I, I didn't meet Jesus face to face on the Sea of Galilee or on the road to Damascus. But Paul, in this passage, what you hear in verses 12 down through verse 20 is him, him pleading with the churches of Galatia as a loving pastor pleads in his defense of and concern for them that they've lost sight of what matters most. The pure, unadulterated hope that comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They've gotten distracted by religious exercise. They've gotten distracted by how they do things. They've, they've gotten distracted by the law. And, and Judaizers have come in and have, they've allowed these Judaizers to separate them from Paul. And that's what he deals with here in the first paragraph. He says, look, you didn't despise and reject me through my physical, though my physical condition was a trial for you. On the contrary, you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. When I first came to you, you recognized the message I had and you received me lovingly. Now, Paul says, I beg you, brothers and sisters, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have not wronged me. You know that previously I preached the gospel to you out of weakness of the flesh. Paul reminds them, as we ought to always remember, we declare the gospel as mere men. It doesn't matter how long you've been a believer. Your hope is beholden to the gospel. We had this long discussion in our, our growth group this morning that connected to the lesson, but it was working through some of the things that, that, that's happening in, in, in our culture, that, that in our particular families in that class. And, and as we walked through that, one of the things that, that I was gripped by, that I was, was challenged by, is that when we forget that we're no better than every other lost sinner... We've taken the gospel for granted. And when I say that, I say every other lost sinner because outside of Christ, outside of his grace and his mercy, that's who I am. I'm dead in my trespasses and sins. I'm dead in my flesh. Now, I believe that in Christ, I'm a born-again believer. In Christ, I am a child of God. I'm adopted into his family. But when we lose sight that we are mere men simply proclaiming a glorious truth, it, it, it then allows us to, to puff our chest out and to, and to have some kind of pride and some kind of arrogance about who we are and what we can do. 
Paul says, I become as you are. You've not wronged me. You know, previous, I preached the gospel to you out of weakness of the flesh. Our call is to simply declare the truth, not as arrogant know-it-alls, but as simply those who have been saved by the very gospel that we proclaim. Paul encourages them with the idea that their shared struggles unite them. He, he, he became as they were, they became as he is. They, they didn't reject or despise him, even though he had this physical condition that he says was not a trial for him. On the contrary, you received me as an angel of God. That's one of the things that if, if we can get a hold of this fact that every single one of us stands on the same plane, every one of us, all of all, every human that has ever taken a breath on this earth stands in the same position before God outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every single one of us is condemned before God, whether religious or irreligious. No matter what your sin is, your sin may be different than my sin, but we've all sinned and we're all on that same level. We're all on the same plane. And if, if we forget that, we, we won't be connected, we won't be united. But if we'll remember that we're all in this together because outside of Jesus, we have no hope. You have no hope and I have no hope. All of us are condemned to hell outside of Christ. I, I have, I've been consumed, as I told you last week, to some extent with the news. I've stepped back from it a little bit this week, just for my own sanity and my own health. But one of the things that I notice is one of the most popular uh, MPs, they call them, uh, parliamentarians in Ukraine is a, is a lady who uh, had a picture of her with, with a... Uh, uh, automatic weapon that went viral. She had never touched a gun in her life, but she decided that, that as, as a leader in her nation, she was called to uh, stay behind and fight and picked up a weapon, got trained, learned how to use it, and, and had a photo of her with it, and that thing has gone viral. It has opened doors for her. She probably does 10 interviews a day, and one of the things that you can pick up on pretty quick, especially if you go back through her Twitter feed, she didn't like the president of the Ukraine. They're on different parties. They're, 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 it'd be like, you know, Republicans and Democrats. They were, they were on different sides of the aisle. And up until about February uh, the 22nd or 23rd, uh, she oftentimes would say things that she didn't agree with him. But what happened? Now they're all on the same team. They're reminded of the importance of their freedom. And because of the fight for freedom, they, they, they realize, hey, we're not that much different. We're kind of alike. We're in this together. There's something more important than, than, than your disagreement with me over this issue. There's a bigger battle that we're fighting. And church, if we'll remember that we're all on the same team when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the only hope of a dying world, if we'll, if we'll function from the same side, if we'll work together, we can be united and our struggles will unite us. Our identity will unite us. Our identity's gotta be found in Christ, not anywhere else. Paul draws them together and he's pleading for unity that they come together as they were. But to do that as a church, 
We're going to have to rally around the gospel. There's a lot of other things. We, there's, a, there's different interpretations of various things in Scripture, and some of them are a whole lot more important than others, but there's one that rises to the top. Do we stand on the truth of God's Word that all men are sinners? All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and every single human being who's ever taken a breath on this earth is destined for eternity in hell. Everyone. You, me, your children, your grandchildren, every one of us is sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And there is one hope, one, that we get out of this thing alive. And that hope is rooted and grounded in the Son of God, Jesus, who died on a cross, taking your sin and my sin upon his shoulders, crying out from the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Rejoicing in these two words, or one word in Greek, to telestai, it is finished when he paid the price. And three days later, Sunday morning in that tomb, that buried body began to breathe, right? And he rose up out of that grave, victorious over death, hell, and the grave. And he offered us an incredible gift. He said, if you would simply believe and put your faith in me, you'll have eternal life. You'll share in the death, the burial of your sins, the, your, the, the forgiveness and redemption that comes through Christ. You'll share in his death and you'll share in his victory. If you'll simply put your trust in Christ and Christ alone for eternal life. There's a lot of things that we can discuss, argue about, but that ought to unite us. Some of you right now, you know that if, unless something changes, you have a child, or you have a grandchild, you have a friend, that unless something changes, when they take their last breath on this earth, they're going to wake up facing the judgment of God because they've never dealt with their sin. I want to tell you that's more important than the carpet. More important than whether Matthew picks a song this week that I don't like. It's more important than whether it's 70 or 72 in here. And there's something about facing death that brings that home. This week I've stood right here and preached the gospel to two different families, two different circumstances who lost loved ones. There's a hope. There's a hope in the gospel. There's rejoicing when you know that your loved one is walking with the Lord because of what Jesus has done for them. And there's a confusion and there's a dismay when either you don't know that truth or you're not sure that your loved one does.
there's a clarity that comes when we face death. Just like there's a clarity right now on the streets of Kiev about how important freedom is, how valuable freedom is. There is a clarity to the gospel that comes when you stand next to the grave of a loved one. But sadly, far too few of us recognize that clarity until it's too late. Paul is pleading with all of his heart to the Galatian church. He's he's pleading with with specific words he uses. He's pleading with questions he asks. He's pleading with with laying out a, a, a clear argument, theological argument, for the purity of the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. He's pleading by getting in the face of those who have have gotten it wrong when he gets in the face of Peter. When Peter begins to to allow the gospel to be adulterated by, by the circumcision party, Paul is continuing to plead with the people, why does he make such a big deal out of it? Why does he plead with such agony? Why does he lay his heart out on the line? Because Paul knows Paul knows that he was condemned to a life in hell, even though he was the religious of the most religious as a Pharisee, even though he was a follower of Yahweh, he came to an understanding on the road to Damascus that he was on the wrong side when he denied Christ. And his only hope was to buy into Jesus, to accept Christ his death, his burial, and his resurrection as his only hope. Paul Paul knew that he was the vilest of all sinners. He was killing people who claimed Christ. And he knew that he was condemned. And so it wasn't all that long ago that Paul went from being the condemned man who was killing Christians to one who was declaring this message with all of his heart, whether he was sick, whether he was healthy, whether he was being beaten, whether he's being stoned and left for dead. And on that journey throughout southern Galatia, he gets stoned outside of the city. Everybody thinks he's dead. They bring him back in the town. He gets healed up. He starts preaching again and walks to the next town and preaches again. That's how important the gospel is to Paul. Why? I want to remind you of what we've seen already in Galatians. Very simply, Paul's goal, his dedication was to make disciples of Christ. And so he says down in verse 19, most of the time he refers to the Galatian church as brothers and sisters. In verse 19, he says, my children, I am again suffering labor pains for you until Christ is formed in you. I am suffering labor pains until Christ is formed in you. They had believed the gospel. They had accepted Christ. Paul knew that they had put their faith in Christ. But now he's had to look at them and say, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Before whose eyes Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? You've left your first love. You've left Jesus. Here's why. Paul believes with all of his heart that the true gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. The gospel is enough to save them. 
They don't need the gospel and their religion. They don't need the gospel and circumcision. They don't need the gospel and baptism. They don't need Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and anything else. They need Jesus. And he is sold out and committed fully to that idea. Jesus is enough. Do you understand that, that no matter how good you are, how bad you are, you cannot add, you can't do anything to cause God to love you more. You realize that? You cannot do anything to cause God to love you more. But let me say it this way. You can't do anything to cause God to love you less. You know how I know? Because even while you were still in your sin, God put his love on display in this way that he sent his son to die for you. While you were in your sin, so you can't do any more, you can't do any less to earn God's love. He loves you. Accept it, believe it, walk in it, rejoice in it. That's the nature of the gospel, it's enough. And second, Paul knows that the enemy will do everything he can to distract us from the simplicity of the gospel that is in Christ Jesus. He, he sees it here in Galatia. He saw it in, in, Corinth, in, in Corinth when he tells the Corinthians. He says, don't allow the enemy to distract you from the simplicity that is Christ. He wants to confuse us with doctrine. He wants to confuse us with theology. He wants to confuse us with religion. He wants to confuse us with all kinds of religiosity and religious exercise and the celebration of days, months, years, seasons. The enemy will throw anything at us to distract us from the simplicity that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's the bottom line. Folks, Jesus is enough. He is all that we need for life and eternity. Scripture says it in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. In Christ we have every spiritual blessing necessary for life and godliness. Jesus is enough. He's enough to get you through this life. He's enough to get you into the next one. Jesus is enough. And Jesus, not only is he enough, he's better than anything else this world can offer you. Anything. There's an old hymn that says he's better than silver and gold. He is better than anything that this world can give you. Jesus is enough. Jesus is all we need. And Jesus is better than anything that this world can offer you. Let's not get distracted or take for granted the glory of of the simple gospel that Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough to save your children. Jesus is enough to bring eternal life to your grandkids. In fact, not only is Jesus enough, Jesus is the only. He's our only hope. We can get distracted by everything else as we walk through the everyday challenges of life. And that's one of our biggest problems. Sometimes it takes standing next to the grave. Sometimes it takes the, the cruise missiles flying overhead to remind you of what matters most. Jesus is enough. And he's what we need. 
If you don't have that relationship with him, I plead with you as Paul pled with the church, surrender. The Holy Spirit, if you're, if you're hearing this message, whether you're online or you're in this, this room, if you're hearing the message and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I can assure you right now the Holy Spirit's tapping on your heart. He's drawing you to him. Don't ignore it. Respond to him. Christian, if you've been distracted by all kinds of other things and you are not sold out to the, to the truth of the gospel, and Jesus is the one and only way to, to eternal life, he is your one and only hope, I plead with you to repent and come back and trust him and him alone. You're foolish if you think that that even though the gospel is the only way to get to heaven, you're foolish that if you think you can live this life in your own strength. That's what Paul called the Galatians. He called them idiots. If you think you can do it on your own, you're an idiot. Turn back to Christ by faith. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Watauga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Watauga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.